Well, for the season of Lent, we've been looking at a series of powerful stories that Jesus told to communicate important spiritual truths. And we call these stories parables. A parable is just simply a story with a point. And parables challenge us, they encourage us, they give us perspective and help us see the world as, as God does. Now, along the way throughout this series, and this week is the last week in it, um, we've addressed some of the most important topics of the human experience, some of the questions that we all have. And the purpose of these stories, we understand, is that while they may be entertaining, that's not their purpose. They're to elicit a response, to get us to do something different with our lives. And that is especially true with the story that we're going to look at today, a well-known story, at least to some, called The Parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, you may have heard it, maybe you've not. Either way, I'm going to read the story, and then we're going to talk a little bit about what it means. The story's found in Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 25. And if you'd like to, to follow along in the Pew Bible, it's on page 1581, 1581, although the words will also be on the screen. So let us read this together. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for the extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law said, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. So Luke tells us that there's a man he calls an expert in the law who came to Jesus with a question. Um, sometimes this man is referred to as a lawyer, but he's a particular kind of lawyer, one who specializes in religious law. And his main job was to help people sort out the rules for daily life um, at a time when people cared about these things and wanted the religious answers. And so because of that, he occupied an honored position in society. Luke tells us that he stood up in order to test Jesus, and immediately that gives us a clue about his motives. In Jesus' day, as in ours, there are two groups of people. There is one group that have a sincere interest in the answers to their questions. They have real intellectual or emotional or ethical concerns, and they really want to know, and so their questions come from a sincere place. And then there are those who don't really have a real interest, they just want to engage in endless argument because it allows them to keep God at an arm's length. And Luke makes it clear that this lawyer is not in the first group, but in the second. This isn't a genuine question, that he has 
and purpose here, an intention of trying to trap Jesus, to get him caught saying something that would get him into trouble. So his question, he asked Jesus, is what does he need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus could have answered his question, but he doesn't. Instead, he asks the man to answer the question. Now, in some ways, the guy is stuck here a little bit because he can't say, I don't know. He, after all, is an expert. And so the average person could have said that, but he couldn't. So he gave what I would call a Sunday school answer. Some of you had children, and in Sunday school, the teacher says a question, and the kid knows that it's either God or Jesus. That's the answer. So this guy had, uh, he had what equivalent of a, a Sunday school answer when he said, love God and love others. By the way, some of you know that that's the city church purpose statement, but it was also at the time a familiar way of summarizing their obligation to God, to put God before everything else and then to live it out by loving others. Although the text from the Old Testament specifically says love your neighbor, you'll find out later why we say others when we summarize that statement. What Jesus said is, you've answered correctly, do this and you'll live. And the man on one level is relieved because he knows that uh, kind of he got that part down. He knows how to live that out. But he's testing Jesus, and so he decides, you know what, I'm going to push my luck a little bit, and he asks a follow-up question. <laughs> now, before we hear the question, Luke adds a cynical comment. He says, he was looking to justify himself. Now, another version, accurately, I believe, says he was looking for a loophole. So when he says, who is my neighbor, he's not actually thinking about how many people he ought to love. His real motive is to say, who don't I have to love? So in that equation, love God and love others, he wants the definition for others or neighbor, and he wants to draw some boundaries around that. Now, don't think we don't do that today because... You know, let's say somebody who's a conservative wants to draw the line before they have to, to love, uh, you know, that bleeding heart liberal. And the liberal wants to draw the line before they have to love what they think of as a heartless conservative. Some today want to draw the line before they have to love a Muslim or an immigrant or a Packers fan. I mean, there are all sorts of ways we draw boundaries here and want to decide who we have to love and who we don't. In Jesus' day, most people believed that the word neighbor meant fellow Israelite. So when this man asks, who's my neighbor, he's looking to limit his responsibility. Obviously, at least to him, there are Gentiles and other deplorable types that he surely does not have to love. Well, again, Jesus doesn't answer his question directly. He doesn't define the term. He doesn't give a philosophical answer. Instead, he tells a story, as it turns out, a memorable story. And it begins with a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And you'll notice in the text it says he's traveling down. That's not because he's going from north to south. It's because he's going from a high place. Jerusalem is about 2,700 feet in elevation. Jericho is below sea level. This is a distance of about 17 miles, but you drop about 3,000 feet in the meantime. It's a mountainous terrain. It's full of crags and caves. And it gave thieves lots of places to hide, to strike, and to escape with ease. And that leads to trouble for this man. Now, we don't have any details, which leaves us with all sorts of questions because it doesn't tell us what his ethnicity is. doesn't tell us whether he was religious or particularly devout. Um, it doesn't tell us whether he was foolish to be traveling along on this dangerous road. Uh, all of those things we don't know. All we know is he was attacked, he was stripped of his clothes, stolen, his money was stolen, he was beaten, and he was left half dead. Jesus seems to be here purposely ambiguous, though. I don't think he left those details out of the story just because he, wasn't, well, he was wanting to shorten things. I think that to the lawyer, all of those details would have been important 
They would define who he needed to love and who he didn't. But to Jesus, they're irrelevant. As we'll see in a moment, Jesus expanded the term of what it meant to, to love your neighbor. So this guy is just wanting to, to not ask the question of who's deserving and who's not. And whether they're putting themselves at risk or not, he wants them to love this, everyone. So Jesus then continues with the story by telling us that there are two who walk by. One's a Levite, one's a priest. They're both widely respected and admired. In fact, the listeners of the story, if they'd been told the character list before they heard the story, they would have expected these guys to be among the good guys, committed to righteousness and ritual purity, people who were very public about giving to the poor, but they don't stop. And that's why Jesus surprises those who's listening. There may have been all sorts of reasons. Many have speculated why they didn't stop. We're actually not told, but they'll speculate, for example, that maybe these uh, religious leaders were fearful of that maybe this man might be dead and that would make them ritually impure. Uh, one of the daily requirements was that if you came in contact with a dead body, you had to wash and then be uh, separate from people for a season, a time, um, and not be able to perform, say, religious duties. Um, or maybe they were just fearful of their safety. This man may have been actually faking. He may have been a robber himself. Or there may have been others hanging around, hiding behind the rocks nearby. We're not told because those things are not important to Jesus. Jesus' point here is that they lacked compassion. They came, they saw, they passed by on the other side of the road. Now, there are always good reasons for us not to do what we think we ought to do, what we know we ought to do. But in the end, they all sound hollow. In the end, both men saw this man. Uh, they could have stopped. They could have had compassion, but they didn't. But there was one man who did stop, one man who did show mercy. And the identity of the man, at least for those who were listening at the first time this story was told, was a shocker. Because the word Samaritan, while it has a positive aura today, did not then. When we hear the term good Samaritan, we think of someone who's good and kind and takes a risk to be helpful. None of that would have been true when those who were listening to the story heard it for the first time. The term good Samaritan would have been to them an oxymoron. A Samaritan would have been the last person they would have expected to help. It would be a little bit like if we retold the story and said that this was the good radical Islamist. That's how starkly this would have come across to them. Jesus looked down, or excuse me, Jews looked down on Samaritans. They viewed them as outcasts. They thought of them as biracial, people who didn't celebrate and worship in the right way. Um, it's a, not a stretch to say that they hated and despised them. Jesus was once accused by his critics of being a Samaritan and demon-possessed, and neither of those terms were positive. But this Samaritan did something that the other two did not do. Facing the same dangers that they faced, we're told that when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and helped him. He cleaned him and bandaged his wounds. And then he put the man on a donkey. He carried him to a place, an inn, a place where he could stay. He paid the bill and promised that if there were more expenses when he came back, he would, uh, he would pay those as well. And then he went on his way. Now that's the end of the story, but not the end of the interaction between Jesus and this religious leader. So he asked the man, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the lawyer, probably mumbling under his breath, the one who had mercy on him, because he really couldn't say anything else. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. 
Once Jesus finished with the story, the lawyer probably knew that he'd been had. Um, he could not, if he were honest, remain as he was because he knew that Jesus was telling him that he needed to be moved by compassion whenever he saw someone in need. No matter whether they, uh, their ethnic background or moral history or anything else, whether they were near or far, he needed to be willing to help to serve this person. So when he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, he was looking for a way to limit his responsibility, but Jesus flipped the script. He flipped the question. Instead of the question being, who's my neighbor, he is saying, the question is, to whom am I to be a neighbor? Everyone's a neighbor, Jesus says. You need to realize that your neighbor is anyone you're in a position to meet the needs of. So anyone who has a need and you're in position to need, meet it, that is your neighbor. So instead of wondering, um, if I stop and help this man, what's going to happen to me? We need to ask, Jesus says, if I don't stop, what will happen to him? And so in the end, the Samaritan, the last person anyone would have ever expected to be the hero of the story, it's he who lives all this out. Now, how do we live all of this out? What do we do with what we've just heard? Well, in some ways, um, this story, which ought to change us, already has. And let me just explain how. It's not a stretch to say that this is one of the most important and impactful stories that's ever been told in human history. It has changed our culture in profound ways. Prior to the time that Jesus told this story, no one would have expected someone to define neighbor so broadly. Not a Jew, not an Egyptian, not a Roman, not a Greek. No one would have ever have thought of neighbor as being inclusive of almost anyone, actually anyone that you would meet. But now 2,000 years later, we're very aware of our duty to those who may be far away from us. It almost seemed unimaginable in Jesus' day that we would view things that way, but that's the way that this story has changed us. So we think of those when we see images of people in faraway places suffering, we think we ought to do something. We feel compelled to break down racial and ethnic barriers, to love those who are different from us, to care about even our enemies, knowing that they too are persons of great dignity, created in the image of God. So it's not America or any other nation first, but others that we ought to think about. Now that doesn't mean, though, that we live up to it. In fact, there are plenty of people who today who think selfishly who think first about kin or tribe or any other way that we tend to divide ourselves up. But even those folks are aware that it ought to be we, not me, that is the ideal. And yet, even those of us who embrace the value that Jesus taught in this parable struggle. The principle may be easy to understand, but it's difficult to live out. Now, we may not be as selfish as somebody else. It's often easy to look at people that we consider to be more selfish than we are. But we too regularly fail to be good neighbors to those who are in need. So the natural tug of the human heart is toward selfishness, toward tribalism, toward narrowing or limiting our understanding of neighbor. So Jesus tells us to think deep and hard about who God might be asking us to love. When Jesus talked about neighbors near and far, he wasn't so much talking about physical distance, although that could be true as well, but he was talking about those who may be close to us but still far away in this way, people that we don't have a natural sympathy for. That might be political. Democrats not sure they trust a Republican. Republican isn't sure they trust a Democrat. Or it might be a Muslim neighbor or just someone we disagree with profoundly on some social issue or another. It's often hardest to live out uh, effectively with people who have, are vastly different from us, with people that we have little in common with. Loving our neighbor, let alone our enemy, is profoundly difficult. Now, I know that some of you may not be old enough to know the comic strip Peanuts. 
Um, Peanuts featured, its main character was a guy named Charlie Brown, a kind of um, a little bit naive, warm-hearted, kind of good-hearted guy. Um, but there was also another character named Lucy who was a, had a little bit of an edge. And one time Lucy and Charlie Brown were talking and Lucy said to Charlie, she said, humanity I love, it's people I can't stand. And the point she was making is something we've all experienced, that in the abstract, it's easy to say that we love others, but it's a lot harder to do that when it's a concrete person that we disagree with or annoys us. That means that we can be horrified by the atrocities of the Holocaust and yet hate our brother-in-law. That's just the way it is. I once had a conversation with a man. Um, this is another one of those conversations that occasionally I have where I tell someone I'm a pastor. Usually that's a conversation killer, but in this case it wasn't. Uh, this guy said, well, are you a pacifist? And uh, kind of came out of the blue, and I said, well, I'm sympathetic. I respect pacifism, and I am, I told him, challenged by Jesus' uh, a command, to uh, Jesus' words, blessed are the peacemakers. It helps me understand that our first impulse always ought to be to, resign, or to resolve conflicts peacefully. But I said, I think there are times when because of the evilness of the human heart and because of things that people do, when there, it is necessary to use force to restrain evil. That's always a last resort, I said. But it was pretty clear that he disagreed with me, and I think he came this close to saying, shame on you. Um, it was only later in the conversation I learned some more details about his life. I learned that he was both divorced and estranged from one of his children. In fact, one of his grown daughters was nearby, and this conversation was going on, and when he wasn't paying attention, she said, he's a really hard guy to live with. Now, my purpose of telling this story is not to trash his character. I'm sure there's more to the story. Um, and as it seems probable, I believe he had a sincere commitment to nonviolence and to peacemaking. But his personal life was marked by conflict, noble sentiments. And yet, it was difficult for him to love people in front of himself. We all are like that. Distant people are easy to love. Those who are close to us may irritate us. Somebody down the block who has a view that we find incomprehensible, those folks are much more challenging for us to love. Now, one of the basic principles here is that we need to be in proximity to those who are in need. That can change us. The two religious leaders, it says, crossed by on the other side of the road, but the Samaritan went across the road to be near this man who was in need. Now, for us, what it means is that we need to get close to those who have needs, it's easy to isolate ourselves from whole categories and classes of people today. Our way our culture works, the way society works, the way our daily lives work, we often are not in contact with people who have needs. Let me rephrase that. I'm not always in contact with people who have needs. And that's something that we need to change. We need to get close enough to see their reality because distance breeds apathy and proximity uh, builds, builds uh, um, empathy. Our daughters had the same pediatrician for the first five or six years of their lives. Uh, when he retired, I didn't see him again until we started City Church and we began volunteering with Community Emergency Service, CES. Some of you have been there, some of you volunteered with them. Um, we first started volunteering and I remember the first time we went down there, I ran into him and turned out that he had, uh, after he'd retired, he decided that was one of the places he was going to volunteer. He did intake interviews with clients, helping find out ways that CES could serve their needs. Um, and he told me something when I was there, either that time or a subsequent time. He, he said to me, he said, you know, I've been fairly successful in my life. And he said, for the most part, I've credited that to intelligence and hard work. But he said, working here has changed my perspective because it showed me ways that everything has been stacked in my favor. 
I've had so many advantages that these folks can only dream of. I had two parents in a loving home, a stable place with enough food. I lived in a safe neighborhood with good schools. I've had great mentors. And all of that led to me actually being able to graduate from medical school. He said, the distance between my lives and the lives of people that I serve seems large. But if they had the advantages that I had, their lives would be very different. This is a man who had eyes to see by being close to those who were in need. Now, the parable ends with the Samaritan leaving to continue on his journey. And I don't want to make too much of any detail in a story. Often parables are meant to tell just a few uh, important principles. But I do think that there's a value here we ought to understand. There's something, a, a principle we should understand. And that is that all of us are finite. Um, we can only be in one place at a time. We only have so much time and money. That's why it's important to be realistic. Now, I do believe this story should shake us to the core. Most of us are simply not looking around. I would say all of us, me included, are not looking around enough to see the needs of those who are right in front of us. But we also need to be careful. We can't and won't be able to meet every need in the world. Jesus wants us to serve. He wants it to cost us something. But there are limits. Sometimes the needs we see need to be met by others. So how do we find that balance? What I would suggest is we need to do something but not everything. We need to do for one what we wish we could do for all. Do for one what we wish we could do for all. Loving others, loving our neighbors will cost something. It may cost us time, money, emotional energy. It may make our lives more complicated. And it may even be that we're misunderstood, even criticized or unappreciated by the very people we're seeking to serve. Jesus didn't expect us or didn't tell us to expect anything in return. We do what we do to serve God. If we only serve the person, we're going to be disappointed and disillusioned. Sometimes it's the very people you're trying to help who appreciate you the least. Some even turn on you. But if you do what you do to serve Christ, it won't bother you quite so much. And the point here is to do something. Last week I told you a story about a flight that I took a few years ago to Chicago. I know not all of you were here, but um, I was looking forward on that flight to 90 minutes of silence, to read my book, to listen to Spotify. And uh, I sat down and then right as the flight was just about to, to leave, uh, a young woman came and sat on my row and it was pretty clear that I was not gonna get a read. We were gonna have a conversation. And early on, uh, she found out I was a pastor. Again, that's usually a conversation killer. It was not with her. And soon she was asking questions, lots of questions that included, what's a parable? So I told her what a parable was, a, a story with a spiritual point. Um, she asked me what my favorite one was, and I told her the parable of the prodigal son. If you want to hear what I said about that, you can go listen to the podcast. But when I finished telling her that story, and she was very impressed with it, she really liked it, um, she said, what's your second favorite story? And I said, that's easy also. I said, that's the parable of the Good Samaritan. She'd heard the word prodigal. She didn't know the story. She'd heard the word Samaritan, good Samaritan, but she didn't know the story. So again, I told her, I summarized it for her just as I had the, the other parable. And when I finished, she said, that is really inspirational. And she's right, it is. And yet it's so much more. In fact, I would say that if this is nothing more than an inspirational story, it's unlikely to change us very much. That's because inspirational stories carry us for a while, but eventually we grow weary. We need something more substantial than just inspiration. What's interesting to me is the way that these two stories, the prodigal son and the good Samaritan, work together. 
Jesus gives us, I think, the Samaritan story to illustrate what it means for us to love others and the prodigal son story to illustrate what it means to, to love and be loved by God, which makes these stories like siblings. The prodigal son talks about our vertical relationship with God, that God's grace given us in Jesus when he died on the cross and rose again from the dead is the way in which we can enter into a relationship with God. The Good Samaritan story challenges us to view everyone as our neighbor. So it'd be easy for us to look at this second story and just say, get busy and do something. And it's true. At the end of the story, Jesus says, go and do likewise. And what we could do is give you a list and you'd begin to feel overwhelmed by the duty that you have. But I think we get this story backwards if we start with the Good Samaritan story and the neighbor part first. Instead, we need to start where Jesus started, and that is with loving God. Once we truly understand God's love for us, that comes not because we've done anything, but because of what Jesus has done for us. Once we understand that, out of gratitude, it's much easier for us to live out the second half of this equation, that we are to love others. So instead of duty, we find that our love flows out of our experience of God's grace. Once we comprehend how much God loves us, we find it comparatively easy to extend that kind of love to others. And that is why we can do with joy not duty, what Jesus asks of us, and that is to go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this entire series where we've looked at these stories that Jesus has told, stories that challenge, stories that illuminate, stories that guide us into the way of life that you have for us. And Father, with this last challenging story, we would pray that you would give us eyes to see places where we can step in and meet needs that are in your world, the needs of people who may be close to us and far away, people either far away in distance or maybe just in differences in the way that they see the world. May we be people who love indiscriminately, people who see neighbors as those who, uh, uh, for whom uh, you have great love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.